For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, two Muslim American teens share insight into the observance and meaning of Ramadan. Learn about the creative spirit of artist and UA educator Sama Al-Shabi, receiver of a Guggenheim Fellowship for her groundbreaking photography. And a conversation between mom, Danny, and her eight-year-old son, Aiden, about their autism family and making changes during the pandemic. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This year, the holy month of Ramadan will continue through May 12th. Muslims around the world are fasting from dawn to dusk, devoting time each day to prayer, being with family, and giving back to their community. Some Ramadan traditions have been more difficult to observe during the pandemic. But Yasmin Acosta talked with two young American Muslims who carry the spirit of Ramadan with them every day. My name is Alina, and I go to Basis Ura Valley, and I write for Bear Essential News. Awesome. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Alina. I would love to learn more about Ramadan, so if you can just tell me, what does the typical day look like, Alina? The typical day starts very early, like 4 a.m., and then we pray our the first of our five daily prayers. The first part of the day is all family time. And then we go through our day fasting. After that, we'll do our normal tasks during the day. And then at sunset, um, we have to pray our daily prayer, Maghrib. We have to break our fast and then pray that. Usually we read Quran between sunset and our last prayer of the day, Isha. And then after that, we start praying our extra nightly prayers. And those last until really late. So that takes up our time, and that's the reason why we have to finish our other tasks before that. And one thing that I was wondering about was what Ramadan looks like when you're younger. I mean, do you start fasting at a young age, or is that something that starts later on? Um, the recommended age for fasting is I started at nine, but before that, I just did like a training. Like my parents are fast, so I think it's fun to wake up super early in the morning and eat. And then once you think it's fun, you start liking it and you start realizing the importance of it all. My little brother's three, so he might not understand as much, but my sister, she's seven and she's already fasting basically most of the days of Ramadan. I think she's learning really fast. And just like I learned really fast from my parents, I think it just spreads on to the rest of the family and it becomes fun. It doesn't feel forced on them either. The main reason for all of these activities in Ramadan is to improve our overall well-being. And it's not just that, but you're also spreading that positive attitude to everyone. That's also very crucial. Each year, our family shares usually sweets with our neighbors to share the joy of this blessed month. Just a simple act like that can mean a lot in this month toward improving your attitude and relationship with your neighbors and those around you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this conversation. I've learned so much already about Ramadan. So I guess we can move forward and have you read your essay. 
The tradition I look forward to in the month of Ramadan is sharing a meal as a family at a time before dawn when our whole family is home without having other work to do. We then pray the first of the five daily prayers pleasure together. Observing Ramadan can mean family time, peace, giving, and self-discipline. In Ramadan this year, some things are easier for me and some became more challenging. With final exams, online learning made it easier for me to fast without as much stress compared to if I were attending in person. I also have been getting more time to do extra prescribed prayers special to this month. The pandemic year has limited some of the congregational traditions of Ramadan, such as praying at the mosque and breaking our fast together as a community. Self-discipline applies to all activities we do in Ramadan. We have to manage reading the Quran, praying, fasting, giving charity, all the while having a schedule for waking up and finishing our normal tasks. We fast to be grateful. It reminds us of how people who fast every day of their lives from starvation feel like, and we're just feeling a bit of what they feel. Setting goals in Ramadan is very crucial. Goals can include how to help and participate in charity programs, projects, or helping yourself improve. For example, one of my goals is helping people in need. My family and I make kits with daily use items and distribute them to people in need whenever we see them, usually as we're driving. This month, I want to expand my idea and include my local community. Ramadan is about having a positive attitude as well. Spreading that positive attitude to everyone is also important. Each year, our family shares a small gift, usually a box of sweets or cookies, with our neighbors to share the joy of this blessed month. A simple act like that can mean a lot in this month toward improving your attitude and relationship with those around you. I want people to know that I could have just focused on schoolwork and skipped the voluntary night prayers, but I felt the need to do it, more than any optional prayer outside of this month. You can see self-discipline comes into all the actions in Ramadan, and the reason I did these was because of this discipline I made for myself, even during times of hesitation. Ending the month as a reward for all the work we did approaches Ebo Fitr, the last day. A day of celebration, no fasting and gathering. This day had to be cut to celebration at a limit due to the pandemic making some gatherings risky. Ramadan was a training for us, and in the end, we shouldn't forget to apply our good deeds and goals throughout the rest of the year. Thank you so much, Alina. That was beautiful. Thank you. Hello, my name is Hasib Rafan. I'm currently a junior at the University of Arizona. I was born in Chicago, but I've been living in Tucson for almost a decade now, and I am a Muslim. How many people are in your family, Hasib? Five in total. My two parents and I have two older brothers. And does everybody practice Ramadan? Yeah. Has the pandemic changed your traditions at all this year? Definitely. And I'd say just as the pandemic has changed all things, uh, just personally, it's a lot easier to fast when you can avoid the heat by staying at home. You know, you're not going to get as dehydrated. It's a lot easier to conserve your energy if you're not walking between classes in 90 degree weather. Uh, But there's also definitely consequences. And Mainly, I would say this is in the form of decreased community involvement, because that's sort of a critical part of Ramadan. This this concept of the congregation, the community, this is the centerpiece of the Islamic social system. And the pandemic has definitely proven detrimental to that. You cannot have a large gathering of Muslims if you're afraid of spreading the virus to one another. 
And so in that way, the pandemic sort of forced Muslims to re-envision the way that we we treat our congregations or coming together, our group prayers. So all of that has definitely changed as a result of the pandemic. So what does that look like now? So previously, it's a common tradition for Muslims to gather each night of Ramadan in the mosque and have about an hour-long prayer in which you read one-thirtieth of the entire Quran. And the way Muslims pray is you stand together as a group, and then once the prayers are over, it's pretty commonplace to socialize with one another, just get more involved in the community. Since that's not really viable anymore, you can't stand shoulder to shoulder with uh, large groups of people. It primarily takes the form of individuals and their families staying at home and praying together, which is still an important experience, but it isn't what it usually is. Are there specific intentions behind the prayers? The goal is to read one thirtieth of the Quran each night of Ramadan, more or less. And then by the end of Ramadan, you've completed 30 nights. So that's the entire Quran. So the point of it is partially to get a revision of the entire Quran and just reconnect with the what Muslims believe is the literal word of God. In addition to that, though, I think many people find a spiritual value in prayer. They feel closer to God, especially in the late hours of the night when you're tired and all you're thinking about is existence and a higher being. It's a good way to reconnect with what exists beyond our physical, literal world. Hesse, based on what you're telling me, it sounds like prayer is actually a very, very important part of Ramadan. Especially the prayers of the final 10 nights. A person begins to feel incredibly close to this higher power, and it helps you achieve a sort of state of submission to God, which is the entire point of Islam. The word Islam literally means submission to God. So you accept that matters exist that are out of your hands. And yet, there is a just, intelligent being who is responsible for every single occurrence. So this leads to self-acceptance. It leads to peace, just harmony with the state of the world. And this, in turn, helps me feel more certain in my belief and helps me feel a more connected person. Haseeb, what would you like to tell non-Muslims about Ramadan or the Quran? A lot of people ask me why I fast. And yes, there's health benefits to fasting. Um, It teaches a person humility. It helps them understand the plight of those who are less privileged. So these are all benefits of fasting and of Ramadan. But ultimately, the whole point of this holistic experience of Ramadan, it's to learn to exercise self-restraint. When a person can defeat this base carnal desire for sustenance, they become capable of controlling all other lesser desires. And in doing so, they're better prepared to follow the commandments of God. So it's an exercise in learning to hold on to yourself, not necessarily doing what you want to do at a certain moment because there's a higher power and a higher reason. That's the goal of Ramadan. And I think that's something that many people who are non-Muslims and some Muslims don't necessarily fully appreciate. Yasmin Acosta spoke with 13-year-old Alina and 17-year-old Hasib about the traditions and meaning of Ramadan. To everyone listening, whether practicing Muslim or not, I wish you all peace and health through the end of this holy month and beyond.
The photographs of Sama al-Shabi blur the line between the surreal and the hyperreal. She often combines the experiences of women and girls with the natural world in symbiotic ways, redefined as struggles in a digital domain. This UA educator has now been recognized with one of this nation's highest artistic honors, a Guggenheim Fellowship. Next, we'll find out what that means in her own words in a story produced by Andrew Brown. I saw the letter in the email. I've applied to the Guggenheim before, so I know what the rejection looks like. Um, And it was a different subject heading. It was extraordinarily confusing. I didn't really know what to do. And I think I was walking around in a daze for an hour trying to figure out if I could tell somebody or not, because it was clear that you couldn't tell anybody. So finally I told my husband. I'm Sama Al-Shabi. I'm a professor of photography, video, and imaging at the School of Art, University of Arizona. I've just been selected for the Guggenheim Fellowship in photography um, in the creative arts section. I'm Palestinian Iraqi. I was born in Basra, Iraq in 1973. In the 80s, obviously, there was a, a war between Iraq and Iran, and we escaped lived across different countries in the Middle East, eventually moved to the United States when I was in high school. We came in the United States legally, but um, just lost our ability to keep a visa. Um, And this is a period now we're talking about the United States having another war with Iraq, the Kuwait, when Iraq invaded Kuwait. Eventually, I was able to get refugee status by pleading our case in immigration court, in INS and went to undergraduate at Columbia College, Chicago, art school. In one sense, my mother is an artist. I mean, she never formally studied. Her father didn't think that was an appropriate line of work for a young woman to do, and people care about careers and and livelihoods in the Middle East, and so she didn't have that opportunity, but she was a painter, and she always made um, beautiful things. She, She still to this day makes all the costumes for my for my work. Um, she can fabricate anything. My father taught me photography when I was quite young. He was an avid, uh, you know, hobbyist. My mother being Palestinian and my father being Iraqi, just the, the kind of upheaval of our people was something that I was always really obsessed with and thinking about. And then living in the United States in the 90s, 80s and 90s, and seeing how uh, people knew very little about where I was from, And I couldn't understand how people could be suffering so much there. And the rest of the world knew about it, but the United States didn't seem to have it very much in the media. So I had this inclination that I would be a war photographer. Like, that's really what I wanted to do. I was very obsessed with war, um, having been raised in one. After receiving, you know, refugee status and eventual green card, like, I had access to... Um, financial aid. And so I went to Columbia with intent to be in the photojournalism track, which is in the photography department. And um, I really tried (laughs) to be a photojournalist and try to make documentary images. I was not very good at it. I quite naturally just started making photographs in my bedroom, photographing myself, writing on the walls. It was like the really early traces of what I do now. Um, But I didn't know that was art. 
I started seeing the work of Carrie Mae Weems. She was very influential on me, Lorna Simpson. And I, I started thinking, oh yeah, your body can actually be a space for telling such stories and engaging one's experience and asking questions. Equal to photography is performative work. And if you can see in almost all my work, the performance of the body is, is intensely there. And I've never been interested in live performance. I love to watch it, but it's not what I want to do with my, my work. My husband had an opportunity to go to Colorado to get his PhD. We moved there and 9-11 happened, like almost immediately. And I think that's really when I started to understand what kind of work I wanted to make. And I think that's in what's called contemporary art. It's in that area. And so I started looking for graduate programs. And kind of overnight, it was just this huge growth, right, um, that happened. I mean, I might have had all the the language to talk about art before, but I didn't know my space in it until I got to, to CU Boulder. And I really, 9-11, I think it was the thing that crystallized everything for me. All throughout my career, I have come back to the subject of women in, in Iraq in, in various ways. So the Guggenheim proposal, its working title is to speak of absence. And I'm thinking about the tradition of text and image and making narratives, but through non-traditional materials and not necessarily with a camera. The subject implicates the United States' role um, and those they ushered into power in Iraq and how that destabilized Iraq, especially for women. The project explores women's absence from public life and, and social space post-US invasion. I really did make a, a case for the fact in, in the proposal that the United States is complicit into the violence it's ushered into Iraq and it has a role to play. And I'm not saying the arts has ignored that relationship to Iraq and what happens in the Middle East. There has been some very important exhibitions in the United States, but to the degree that these two regions, right, the United States and the Middle East are so tied together for so long, it still just surprises me that we don't talk about this more. Well, I think we all feel very anxious this year about many things anyway, but I, I, I was already feeling like this year's a bit complicated and I, it's hard to imagine into the future of making work when so many institutions are shut down and the arts is really struggling. And um, But I did this proposal last year and it takes about a year almost to find out. I am so happy that this is this is the proposal that I won the grant for. It's daunting, right? But that's what you want a project that's worthy of a Guggenheim, right? To do something that's very daunting. And I really, um, I'm humbled by it. And I feel like that kind of fear and excitement is the right energy to go into the grant with. I felt really darn good, but it's 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 a serious subject and I and I want to do it, I want to do right by it. So those feelings they sit in the same space. We heard Sama Alshabi, recipient of the 2021 Guggenheim Fellowship in Photography. Her story was produced by Andrew Brown. There are a few of Alshabi's photos on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org, with a link to many more that you can see on her own website. April is National Autism Awareness Month. But what does this really mean? 
I asked Bree Seward, executive director of the Autism Society of Southern Arizona and a parent, what she believes. It is a chance to break down stigmas and open the door to empathy and inclusion. When we learn about autism, we can then make improvements in areas like education, the workplace, and housing, enhancing support for those affected by autism. Knowing is the first step, but the next move is taking action. Next, we'll listen in on a conversation between a mom named Danny and her eight-year-old son, Aiden. Aiden is bright and friendly and loves the same things any kid his age does, like Lego, video games, and riding bikes. Along with dad, Chris, this family experienced a shakeup when the pandemic began, requiring them to rethink some of their daily strategies. So Aiden, this is going to be similar to what we did the other day, and we're doing it so that we can maybe help other people understand some of the things that we go through being an autism family. What's the thing about everybody who has autism? Do you remember? They're different. Right. We're all different, but as families kind of experience some of the same things. Autism families have to learn how to pay attention a little bit differently so that we can better understand what our kids and our loved ones are telling us. And people with autism sometimes have to communicate with us a little differently. So it's really a lot of teamwork. One of the things that a lot of people um, with autism families think is important are routines. We had a lot of routines before the pandemic, and we have different routines now. Do you remember when the pandemic first started? Yeah. Did we have to make some changes at that time? Um, yeah. What were some of the changes that you feel like we had? We, like we didn't have to get our backpack ready, pack it up with stuff, and just, you know, like wait for the bus and go to school. Yeah, that's a big routine change, isn't it? How important is it to you that we have good routines? Yeah, because if we didn't, then we'd be, like, so confused. I thought today was um, dinner night. Um, I thought today wasn't uh, a shower night. I thought today was a dessert night. And it will be over and over and over and over again. Right. So it's easier for you to understand what you have to do every night, depending on our routine. What happens when our routine gets thrown off unexpectedly? Like, sometimes, I sometimes just, in my mind, like, I'm, I just, I just start flinging. <laughs> flinging? Oh, my goodness. And sometimes I even, I even fling so much that I just look like I go into ragdoll mode, and then I just get kicked out of the entire thing at at breakneck speeds, basically just. Are you getting kicked out of your brain? So far that I, that I can't even see the ground. Yeah, so routines are very important, and we started a new routine when we started going to school remotely. How did you feel when you found out that we weren't going to be going back to school in the building. I kind of liked it because I didn't have to go into the building. But also kind of didn't like it because I wanted to be near my friends. But now we can still do that even not on Zoom. Yeah, it has kind of worked out, hasn't it? What are some of the things that you like best about being in school on Zoom? 
I don't have to be in a hustle to prepare to go on the bus and go to school. I say I just have to do my my checkers. Sometimes I skip brush teeth because I haven't ate my breakfast yet. <laughs> Is there something else that you like about being in school on Zoom? What about the mute button? I love it. Whenever when I talk to myself and I'm not and I'm not eating, I just slam my mouse cursor back right when it's on top of the like I literally slam it right when it's on the mute button. And I can just talk to myself without disturbing. You can talk to yourself without disturbing the class. Yeah, that's really yeah. great. You, you can do your thing, and it doesn't interfere with anybody's learning, and you're still learning. That's a really cool thing about the mute button. So you miss your friends, but you like being in Zoom school. Have you had a good year in school? Yes. What grade are you in? Third. You had another big change this year. What was that? I go to Cone now. Yeah, you go to but I never got into to to go into the school building and do like that real class in school. Are you looking forward to going back into the classroom next year? Something that I'm looking forward to is seeing my friends in person in the classroom. But, but something I won't like is that I'll have is that I won't be adapted to having the extra stuff. What extra stuff? What do you mean? Like preparing to go to the class or something. We'll have to start all new routines, won't we? Yeah. Getting our backpack ready, maybe taking the bus. And I just won't like it at all. Why not? Because I won't be able to adapt to the new schedule in time. I don't think you give yourself enough credit. You are very adaptable. Even though it may cause you a little bit of stress, You are a great traveler. You are great at going to new places and trying new things. You need to give yourself more credit. We've been home a lot together, right? Yeah. Has there been a positive change? I don't know. Well, when you go to school now, who's there with you? You. (laughs) When you need help with, with something, who do you call? You. Yeah. So... I think we've grown a lot closer this year. We've been able to spend a lot more time getting to understand each other better. Um, yeah. That was Danny and her eight-year-old son, Aiden. I'd like to mention that Danny did a terrific job of working out a system that allowed us to talk and be recorded without the benefit of being in a studio. I heard about their family thanks to the Autism Society of Southern Arizona a grassroots community dedicated to building bridges across the neurological spectrum, connecting others to resources that can help. The Society can be found at asaz.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Yasmin Acosta. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.